This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Hello, listeners. This is Debbie Millman. And who is married to a red-headed artist named Cindy. There was Priya, who was always in love with bad boys who didn't love her back. There was Matilda, who wore a different headdress every time I saw her and told me she covered her head to keep away bad vibrations. There were the Coca-Cola people, who I swear looked different from the Pepsi-Cola people. There were the lonely people buying single-serve frozen dinners in magazines, the busy people buying single-serve frozen dinners and carrying their dry-cleaning, the college students buying single-serve frozen dinners and six-packs of beer, the people who only bought cat or dog food, the underage folks who tried to buy cigarettes, and the folks like me who worked there and bought whatever they could for 30% off and $3.75 an hour. I talked to nearly everyone who came to my register, which infuriated my boss. He couldn't understand why I needed to know everyone's name and where they worked and how many kids and pets and bathrooms they had. But I did. To me, seeing what they were buying in the supermarket was akin to seeing them in the most intimate, vulnerable manner. And I wanted the experience to be less random, less anonymous. I needed to feel connected to them. Some of my customers appreciated my friendliness and answered whatever inane question I asked them. In fact, Bruce, the owner of the office furniture company, became irritated with me when he was forced to repeat answers to my questions. Apparently, I had forgotten he told me the same answers to the same questions on his previous visit. Given my penchant for chit-chat, I wasn't the fastest checkout girl in the supermarket, which my boss took personally. No talking, he would scold me. Talking takes time, and time is money. It confounded me that my boss didn't want to know everything about the people shopping in his store. To me, being able to look into the shopping carts of my customers was the equivalent of looking into their souls. Being able to see their inner lives pass before me was an unprecedented opportunity to somehow peer into a sort of collective humanity. To me, this was like magic. According to Thomas Hine, author of I Want That, How We All Became Shoppers, shopping is deeply human. It may not be the most important expression of human freedom, but it's as close as most of us get in ordinary life. Shopping is the contemporary expression of our complex relationship to things. Objects are useful. They are repositories of magic. They carry meanings that are more powerful than words because they can embody the paradoxes of life. For most of human existence, only a few people have had the power to possess large numbers of objects, 
to create images for themselves and their families that the world would recognize. For the billions who live in today's world of abundant consumer goods, this is commonplace magic, but it is magic nevertheless, and few are willing to give up the power of choosing and owning desirable objects. It is the way in which contemporary people address perennial questions. What will we feed our families? How will they be clothed? What tools are needed to survive and prosper? How should we present ourselves to the world? How should we express our deepest beliefs? I agree with Hein when he states, making material choices is a privilege, a responsibility, and an essential activity of modern life. Shopping is about fantasy and necessity, generosity and greed, thrift and indulgence, identity and possibility. It is also about freedom and responsibility. But if we can understand how we arrive at the choices we make about what to buy and what not to buy, it is, also, is it also possible to get beyond these assumptions? Can a can of soda ever just be about a can of soda? This year, I'm worrying about money more than I have in decades. And sometimes, when I'm visiting the supermarket, it seems that many of my choices are as much about what I am not going to buy as much as what I am. As we navigate through these turbulent times, perhaps we can learn to become less dependent on what our choices say about us and care more about what we actually say. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Dan Formosa. Before we get started with our interview, let me tell you a bit more about him. Dan Formosa is a consultant in product design and research. He is a founding member of Smart Design in New York City, where he was a member of the team that developed IBM's first personal computer, OXO Good Grips Kitchen Tools, and the XM Satellite Radio. Dan recently worked with Ford to develop Smart Gauge, an instrument for Ford's 2010 hybrid cars designed to influence driving behavior and save fuel and innovation for the, audio, for the auto industry. In addition to his design work, he lectures worldwide on the physical, social, and emotional aspects of design, and his work has been included in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art. Welcome, Dan. Thank you, Debbie. How are you? I'm great. Happy to be here. Oh, I'm very happy you're here as well. I read recently that Smart Design was just named one of the top 10 most innovative companies in design by Fast Company. Congratulations. Thank you. So how does one how does one get that type of accomplishment? Do you have to submit work or do they does Fast Company just monitor what's happening in the marketplace and because you have done so much they recognize you for this? I'm pretty sure in that case they found us. They probably know about our um, involvement or design of projects that we've done over the years and I think in that case they found us. In other cases, you know, we seek out some attention. And also, uh, coincidentally, last night, for the first time, I saw, I saw on television Ford's 2010 uh, hybrid car commercial, and it looked amazing. It looked truly amazing. So congratulations on that really important innovation. Um, I was recently in a hybrid car and went 375 miles on half a tank of gas. 
That's great. Isn't that amazing? <clears throat> that is amazing. It's amazing. And it was not downhill, right? You're no, no. It desert lands. Desert right? land. I was in Albuquerque and in Mexico. <laughs> right, so you can't. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it not was. like gravity was assisting. <laughs> exactly. So, so how does one become a product designer? Was this an aspiration that you had when you were growing up? What did you want to be when you grew up? It was. You know, I, if I was going to think about my first exposure to design, maybe one of the first. It was really, really young age. Um, I grew up in, was born, grew up in New Jersey, but right next to New York City. And driving into New York City as a, as a kid, probably through the Lincoln Tunnel, mm-hmm. I remember a billboard of an ID, of a B, sorry, BMW Isetta car. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know an Isetta is. No. But it was introduced in the U.S., I think, in 1959. It was probably for sale for about three weeks before they realized this sort of thing won't make sense in the U.S. But it was a tiny, tiny vehicle that had a door that opened in the front. And entering the Lincoln Tunnel was a billboard that had this very bizarre vehicle. I said, wow, who thought of that? And a woman was actually letting herself out of the car through the front door, basically. The front of this car opened up. So that's probably my first recollection, that design is something that someone had to think up at some point in their lives. And so was that when you decided, okay, this is it, this is what I want to do? Well, that's the age of six, so I probably (laughs) thought about that and being a fireman. I was going to say, designing fire trucks. Designing fire trucks, right. But I think, you know, coming up through high school, it was more somewhere, I was, you know, somewhere lost between engineering and art. And someone had suggested, hey, try design. So I did that. I went to... uh, Who, Who suggested it? Someone in my high school, some counselor, I think actually may have been my art teacher, he said, you know, there's this field called industrial design where people design things like cars, and it is a good combination of engineering and art, and look into it. And I did, and I made a relatively quick decision to pull my act together and apply to some design schools, including Syracuse University, mm-hmm. where uh, I eventually went. They had a very good design program when I was up there. I met a lot of people up there, but some of us eventually emerged out of Syracuse University and a few years later gathered together to start designing things ourselves. That eventually evolved into smart design. The IBM story you told, so I don't confuse the people who I started. Well, that was with Elliot Noyes, right? Elliot Noyes, yeah, that goes, goes way, way back. Also a great project that I fell into just out of school. Just fell baby. into it. Just fell into there was. That's like uh, the equivalent of winning lotto. It was it was a really really interesting interesting program because at the time we were saying a personal what, right? And trying to figure out how exactly a computer, which are big evil machines up until that point, would fit into a living room. Mm-hmm. Or wherever right, because that was the time the they were in warehouses, right? Yeah, exactly. Wherever else, with, um, with not even one gig of memory. <laughs> exactly. Ended up doing some very interesting things on that project. The first conceptions we had of a personal computer, uh, very much. It was very much like the one that was introduced, but we had three options. One was the standard IBM beige, but we also produced one models. I'm talking about in bright red. And another version in teak. Really? Fine home computer woodwork. Wow. Using as that model some of the stereo equipment. I was going to say those stereo systems. You know, like for instance, Bang & Olufsen was popular 
design-wise right. at that point. Um, met Paul Rand during that project. Oh, tell us about that. Uh, I was... That should be part of your bio. <laughs> I met Paul Rand. Right. <laughs> that was really good. You know, Elliot Noyes is very well-connected. You know, well, no, he was a well-known designer. And, ex- of course, extremely well-connected. Right. Knew everyone. was friends with Alexander Calder. The first time I met him, uh, you know, I got the job there and was called down to his office. And uh, he's on the phone and he waves me in. And he's talking to someone. And he, like, pulls the phone aside. He goes, I'm on the phone with Henry Moore. You know, the sculptor. <laughs> Sit down. Be quiet. Right. So uh, he was well-connected in the art world. Uh-huh. Um, and we were doing some work on this IBM personal computer, and I, being the junior designer, was doing a cover for a disk, which would be a laser disk, which was part of the system, which meant I was handed this graphic design project for the day or the week. Um, wow. And I made a cover that was... In my mind, a beautiful silvery thing mm-hmm. with black is very sort of monochromatic because we didn't want to take away from the thing we were designing. Right. And it was a little, uh, you know, the rest of the design group wasn't too sure about it. So eventually someone said, let's go show this to Paul Rand and see what he thinks. So Were you we, quaking in your boots? No, no. We jumped in the car. It was so informal. It was so, they said, okay, sure, let's go see Paul. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we jumped in the car, right? Dave Danielson was driving. Dave Danielson and I was driving to see Paul Rand. They said, fine, bring the thing. We'll go see Paul. Um, As we're driving over there, Dave goes to me, you never met Paul Rand before, did you? I'm going, no. He goes, you won't believe his language. I'm going, what do you mean? He goes, he talks like a sailor. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going, what do you mean? He goes, every fourth word would be a curse, right? And we went to meet Paul Rand. Um... Every fourth word was a curse. Well, you're allowed to curse on, on uh, internet radio. I, it, was, uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a rant. It was one long rant. It was, God, he talked like a sailor. What did he think of the drawing? He actually said, look at this thing I just designed for IBM. And he, he, went into, he went behind him and he pulled out this, as I recall, it was an orange box for these electric type balls. You know, the old type yeah, balls on yeah, IBM sure. computers used to be round and spin around. And he designed a box that was orange with silver foil making up the IBM logo. Could have been gold foil, but I think I'm pretty sure it was silver foil. And he goes, look at this goddamn figure, just as I've ever read, you know, curse, 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 curse. But he got it through, and it was foil, you know, we bonded on, right. the, on the foil yeah, level, absolutely. right? Yeah, so it was fine. Paul Rand and I bonded on the use of silver foil for IBM, and we got back in the car and drove back home, and the foil cover was the you know, part of the set that, that we, uh, we were showing. Now, did you have any sense of the magnitude of this invention at that time? Was it? Did you know how much it was ultimately going to change the world? No. I was into computers in college. I was one of the few people who dared to try to do a computer graphic. Wow. It was an extremely unpopular thing to do in college because mm-hmm. computers were evil and how could you dare draw something that's not done by hand and was this in the 70s or the 80s it was in the late 70s and i actually sort of stopped showing my little and it was a very crude com- computer graphic it wasn't it was it was basically a wireframe and i tried drawing a bowl i did draw a bowl and a plate and like a matching set because you do a wireframe and spin it it's very crude computer graphics and i brought it that was into the computer 
group, you know, computer department. And I came back to the design group. I said, hey, look at this thing I did. I showed it to like four or five people. Completely unpopular thing to do, you know, not very well um, received uh -huh. from a bunch of people coming up through art school. You know, computers were evil, but it's hard to remember. But back then, computers, big business, and many like things were evil. Well, I remember when telephone answering machines were considered egotistical. In, impersonal. Like, and well, you need to find out everybody that called you when you weren't near a telephone. How narcissistic. And now it's, you know, we people have things in their ears. I just saw the most remarkable presentation uh, on the TED channel. Uh, through the very short list, sent me an email today about Patty Mays, who created at the MIT lab this um, computer that you basically wear, and it's about the size of a cell phone. It's called Sixth Sense, and it can project anything on any surface. You can look down at your wrist, touch your skin, and a watch will pop up and tell you the time. You wear these little, little like almost like a thimble on your finger, and it projects the whole world in front of you. You can go into a supermarket, pick up a roll of, of paper towels, point to the, uh, to the um, barcode, and it can tell you everything about the brand. Nice. How how sustainable it is or it isn't. She makes a joke about whether or not you want toilet paper that's sustainable or has lots of bleach. And it is the most remarkable thing that I've ever seen. Um, Patty Mays, P-M-A-E-S, uh, on TED Talks. Nice. MIT Media Lab. Amazing. Yeah. You know, a couple of weeks ago, Sarah Nagel and I from Smart Design um, went to Arizona State University and did a workshop. And somewhere in our presentation of things, we showed Star Trek communicator right and whatever it was whatever captain kirk used and that thing is huge from the boardroom to you voice america business network hi this is eric ryan co-founder of google soap company method here today to talk to you about fuse the annual event for design and culture brand identity and packaging fuse is taking place april 22nd to 24th at the hotel nico in my beautiful hometown of san francisco Fuse has been the top destination for corporate superstars and design legends for more than 10 years. This year, I'll be talking about the Method brand on Thursday, April 23rd, along with some other brilliant thinkers from McDonald's, Victoria's Secrets, and more. Also joining us is the always amazing Dan Pink, author of A Whole New Mind. And every April, hundreds of design legends and corporate superstars converge at Fuse to join the brand design community and redefine the next generation of brand strategy and design. Time to move beyond the fear and the uncertainty and start a conversation that celebrates possibility, opportunity, and change. Fuse promises to deliver the information, inspiration, and camaraderie that you need to stay on top, focused, strong, and renewed. So register today at www.iirusa.com forward slash Fuse and receive a 25% discount courtesy of Debbie Millman and the Design Matters Show. Hope to see you there. Technology is changing the way we live our lives and how we do business. 
On CIO Talk Radio, we talk about the benefits of technology and the great things it allows us to do, as well as its risks. Heard every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific, Sunjo Gall interviews business leaders and other experts that are shaping the way we use technology. To learn more about the show, visit www.ciotalkradio.com. Keep up with the changing world of technology and listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjo Gall. Listen in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific, right here on Voice America Business. Let's sing that new song. My music track, track, track from the Godom Jack, Jack, Jack plays MP3s, threes, threes, and I download fast, fast, fast. I read the bits, bits, bits on the microchips, chips, chips, and I burn, burn, burn on my favorite hits, hits, hits. By the sixth grade, many girls lose interest in technology, but parents can help keep them updated. Go to girlsgotech.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Girl Scouts of USA and Ad Council. What's it like? What's it like? It's lonely. It's really lonely. I miss my brother. I miss my brother. I'm surrounded by other people, but it's not the same. I've got other people around me, but it's not the same. It's pretty scary, but I don't let it rattle it's me. It's scary around here, but I don't let it rattle me. You always have to watch your back. There's no one to watch my back. I spend my whole day worried who's out to get me. I'm always wondering who's out to get me. But I can take care of myself. But I can take care of myself. No matter what, I'll keep my head up. No matter what, I'll keep my head up. It's not like I have a choice. It's not like I have a choice. This will all be over in five years, three months, and 17 days. This will all be over in five years, three months, and 17 days. Go to jail for a gun crime and your family serves a sentence with you. Something to think about before committing a gun crime. Gun crimes hit home. This message brought to you by Project Safe Neighborhoods and the Ad Council. Let's sing that new song. My music track, track, track from the Godom Jack, Jack, Jack plays MP3, threes, threes, and I download fast, fast, fast. I read the bits. Bits, bits on the microchips, chips, chips, and I burn, burn, burn on my favorite hits, hits, hits. By the sixth grade, many girls lose interest in technology, but parents can help keep them updated. Go to girlsgotech.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Girl Scouts of USA and Ad Council. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 324 Eastern Time, and you're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City, where we were just hit by lightning. <laughs> and that is why we had our technical difficulties. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the very patient Dan Formosa. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Dan, our phone lines are open. Please call 1-866-472-5790. And as I said, Dan, I'm sorry that was the first. We were hit by lightning, and we heard it. We heard it. Not a problem. <laughs> we heard it. So at the time, we were talking about the invention of the IBM's first, very first uh, monitor, which you were part of developing. So let's talk about something more recent, something that has also really influenced the world of design, and that is the OXO, 
products that you have designed. Talk to me a little bit about OXO. Well, when we got out of college and we started working together, we and probably everyone else coming out of school at that time, coming up through the 60s, had this idea that, you know, we should, in whatever way we can, change the world. Mm. Right, 1960s and even 50s in the U.S., a lot of social problems and social issues. And students at that time felt we were being fed a story, you know, Americana, this is a beautiful life. But we were always uh, aware throughout the time of reality checks. Um, You know, the perfect American family may not actually be the perfect American family. They may not actually exist the way it's portrayed to us. As we started designing, we always had our thoughts on the idea that what we really should do is reality check. Maybe we can use our power of design for social good as opposed to evil. Mm. You know, and evil is big evil companies. So coming up through, through the 80s, we had this, this approach that design should really be about people, not about things. I'm talking about product design. You know, Product design through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and 80s, everyone was, uh, even into the 80s, Everyone was focused on the thing, you know, the, the um, name of the profession is industrial design, with right. the word industrial right there. Sounds right. very scary. It's scary. It's, but the, the big industrial complex, right? Yeah, and the focus was how to harness the power of those big giant machines that were pumping out cars or chairs or big metal objects or washing machines or whatever, how to make them more consumer-friendly or consumable. Um, we started our office with the idea that maybe we should focus on people and do reality checks and talk to people and visit people in their kitchens, their homes, uh, very especially with the idea that not everyone is an average consumer. Right. You know, not everyone is... What does that even mean anymore, to be an average consumer? Well, we were, we were being approached by companies who would describe to us an average person. This is our average target person. This is the person where we are targeting, you know, as our customer and, you know, it's usually a female, 34 years old, you know, etc. Um, so many kids, so much income, lives here, right, works this many hours, watch several hours of TV. And we would get that um, description in finite detail. And we would say, well, that's not really important to us. It may be important from a marketing point of view because maybe you're targeting that person in your ads or television commercials, but in terms of design, what we, we really need to know is far ends of the spectrum. You know, if you design a doorway for the average height person, half the people are going to bump their heads. Right. So that average doesn't help us much. Right. So you're looking for the extremes. Half the population is below average. Mm-hmm. Or, right. yeah, 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 okay. 85% think they're in the other half. <laughs> Yes, they do. <laughs> so, you know, given that, we're thinking, well, let's figure out the tallest, the shortest, let's figure out the extremes. And that's actually where a lot of design opportunities are. Um, and that was our point of view. Uh, that was, you know, we had that point of view all throughout the 80s. When right? did you start the company? Uh, Smart Design started uh, with uh, Damon Stoll, actually started it, probably 1979 when he moved to New York City. I think it was about then. He started working and then put on some projects where he needed some help. So, again, pulled from our pool of, you know, design students out of Syracuse. Started working with Tom Dare, Tucker V. Meister and Tom Dare. Uh, That was probably 1980, maybe late 79, 1980. I joined in around 1981. 
was associated with them throughout, but, you know. Did you go straight from Elliot Noyes' office to the Smart Design office, or did you do no, anything? I, no, I had various things around New York City. I was, I was, when I got out of college, I not only worked there, but I was also uh, wanted very much to work freelance so that I can get a feel for many different design offices around the city, you know, meet a lot of people. Who else did you work for? Um, I worked for a whole number of people of industrial designers. And you have a Ph.D. in industrial design. I have a Ph.D. in ergonomics and biomechanics. Okay. So what does that mean exactly, biomechanics? That is mechanical engineering of the body. Bones and tissues and, you know, how the body moves and how it performs and how it breaks, you know, how it behaves and misbehaves. So, of course, going into a project like OXO, where at that point we were approached to design a line of kitchen tools that were specifically would accommodate people who have dexterity problems, things like arthritis, even vision problems. Uh, but with the point of view that we would not treat these as special products, we would just include as many people as we possibly can in the mainstream of consumers. So we designed these products not for people with arthritis, but for everybody, knowing that our biggest challenge would be people with arthritis. Let's just you know bring them into the mix. And we did that. So we did, you know, 100 prototypes. Pretty much knew our stuff about arthritis, you know, or what was needed. You know, again, my background is biomechanics, mm -hmm. and we spoke with many people with arthritis uh, about what their physical needs were. Did a lot of prototyping. I think, though, what I would say is that, you know, the, the company was started by Sam Farber. And while I think the initial line of OXO products were really, really well designed. I think the most radical thing that was done at that time was the idea of introducing a line of products that had that sense of responsibility to include people with arthritis. Mm -hmm. So in other words, when, when they went to their first trade show, while we like really believed in this product and what we were doing, and this is like the culmination of lots of you know years of having this point of view, the OXO products went to the trade show, and we just, you know, sent them out the door, final models, and we kind of had our fingers crossed. We said, I hope our careers are not over. Really? You know, yeah, because, well, you know, it's, it's such a radical thing. We're hoping they do well because, you know, we worked so hard and had this point of view throughout. And, of course, once you put things out in the field, you don't know how they're going to be received. And they were quite radical things, and it really took like a year or two for them to take off. But once they did, it was like... Fine, you know, once everyone accepted it or tried it out or word of mouth spread around. And one of the things that some of the stores did, like Bed Bath & Beyond, is they literally put a bowl of carrots in the stores with an oxo peeler mm -hmm. hanging from the ceiling, which was kind of cool. And it was sort of try-me kind of thing. And once people were touching it and trying it, it, it worked out great. What I, what I did notice or thought about recently is that the initial packaging that we did for OXO, which was probably around 1990, is virtually unchanged from the packaging that's out there now, which is, you know, high contrast, black and white, right. very noticeable. But Did you name the company as well? OXO? Uh, Sam Farber named the company. Okay. OXO, which for a while I was calling Hug Kiss Hug. <laughs> but, no, Sam Farber named the company. And it's, it's very nice to work with because, you know, it reads right side up, upside down. So right. It, was, it reads in many different ways. One of those directions. perfect words. Yeah. Dan, we have a caller. We have Gregory from New York. Gregory, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hey, Debbie. Hey, Dan. Hi. Um, I wanted to go back to the uh, early association you had with IBM. I mean, Debbie sort Gregory, of... Gregory, honey, can you talk a little bit about it, please? Um, I wanted to go back a little bit to the um, the IBM 
and your earlier association with it, and Debbie sort of touched on it. Uh, I mean, you said you you never imagined that a computer, or certainly a personal computer, uh, would do what we can do today, not just in graphic arts, but in everything. Um, but did you ever think that it would be the facilitator to uh, connect the world, people, as it has, like with Facebook and email and all of that? Well, at the initial time we were designing it, that wasn't necessarily in our radar scope. What was in our radar scope would, that would be that the entry into the home would be through entertainment. So the first conceptions of the system included a laser disc which would play movies. Now, this was a giant 12-inch laser disc, <laughs> but they were available. They existed really? at the time. Yeah. And it was actually part of, of the big system. What I do have in my collection, which is actually sort of a great artifact that I need to show or publish or pull out from my drawers, is the first wiring diagram as proposed by IBM engineers. And it is a rat's nest of, I was charged with actually you know, being junior designer, right? So, you know, the engineers are saying, here's a connection, this goes to that, this goes to that, that goes to that, this goes to your stereo system, this goes to your TV, on and on. So I've got the most amazing looking rat's nest diagram of the wiring system proposed by IBM. And it, it's a beautiful artifact. Have you ever seen that photograph? Um, it's from the 50s, and it's, I think it's IBM. I think it's IBM. I could be wrong, but it's, it's this huge, huge, computer system in a room, and the caption is something like, in the year t 2000, um, people will have this that will be the size of a television in their home. <laughs> uh, and and that, that was the vision of the future, that everybody would get their own computer, but it would be the size of a television. Right. This, of course, was the size of a room. Sure, right. So uh, I, I, I just think it's such an amazing uh, history you've had, and so fortunate to see all of that development and Really, not in that long a period of time, really. So you must be very pleased. It's not, and you know, I only started thinking about some of this IBM work recently, and um, because if you put one and two and three together, it, it is sort of a a um, a bit of a journey. You know, I can see some connections taking place. Well, I'm still fondly thinking of. I think it was called a PS30. Is that what I bought in those days? Was there a personal computer and? Suddenly you can have that in your home and have word processing systems. So. I think you're aching yourself, Gregory. Yeah, Gregory I know. Well, you know, yourself. come yeah. on. You know, we're all in the same boat. <laughs> anyway, Dan, it's, it's amazing what you've accomplished. It's amazing. And the OXO, now I'll never be able to see OXO and Target again without thinking of you. Right, or thinking about the first IBM computer. Right. right. Thank you for calling, Gregory. Bye-bye. Thanks, Gregory. Dan, one of the things that I, I read on the Smart Design website when we were doing our research on you was um, I, I read this, this particular bit of information. Using principles of cognitive psychology, a dedicated group of designers, researchers, and engineers at Smart have developed techniques for rapidly understanding how people react, what is important to them, and which attributes of a product really communicate before, during, and after use. Now, without giving away anything proprietary, tell me how you can do that. How can you, how can you understand rapidly how people react, what is important to them? What do you do? How do you get into people's heads like that? Well, you know, when design started looking at people way back, probably in the late 70s, when some people started conceiving the idea of design research, 
there were two fields that were of you know primary interest. One was one was ergonomics, so biomechanics, mm-hmm. was physical design, and the other group that was entering design were cognitive psychologists. Now both of those fields came out of the military, basically out of the Air Force, where they're trying to figure out how to design jet fighters that can go as fast as possible without pilots crashing them. Mm-hmm. So physical biomechanics was very important and a, a huge field in understanding that. So was cognitive psychology because the pilots had to fly these jets. Therefore, you had this pool of people who understood uh, ergonomics and psychology in the context of design, designing Mm -hmm. something, right? So coming into the field of, as the field of design research emerged um, or started to evolve, uh, the areas of interest were both ergonomics and psychology. So I had known and worked with some cognitive psychologists very early on. When we started Smart Design, one of the first projects we undertook was a line of eyewear for Corning Glass. You think of Corning Glass as kitchen stuff, but they're mm-hmm. actually a high-tech glass company. And we said, yeah, not only will we help you design this new line of eyewear, sunglasses, but in addition, we can't find, we did our homework, we can't find any specifications for eyewear, like sizes of fit. We'll undertake a ergonomic study uh, that will also include aspects of psychology. And we did this because we were young and fearless. It was a huge project that we undertook. And it was extremely successful. And what I mean by that is we may know how wide someone's head is, but we don't know what feels too loose or too tight. Right. Right? Or we don't know what at what point do the eyewear seem a little too high or seem a little too low. So we used some very basic techniques from cognitive psychology to not only measure physical properties of the head and how glasses fit, but also the perception of people. Uh, you know, what people were thinking as they were trying these on. And we combined those into a, a group of specifications that were really successful in the sense that rather than fit four out of ten people like most of the companies were doing, they were only fitting four out of ten people, we were fitting seven out of ten people. And if we did two sizes, like large and small, male and female, we were fitting 85% of the population. So this was the early 1980s and it was, it went well, you know, it, it was it was successful. Um, and we were a little surprised actually at how well it worked, but we combined physical biomechanics with perception and, you know, it clicked. Since that time, we have never or rarely uh, done a project that involved physical ergonomics without some aspect of perception to understand how, how people think they're, they're working. How, how well can you trust what people tell you that they're thinking or feeling when you ask them questions about something that they are either wearing or are going to buy? Well, the cool thing about these techniques that we use in psychology is that we can, through analysis, is we can put two and two together and understand how people are thinking in ways that they can't necessarily articulate. How do you do that? How can you do that? Well, we do a number of things. For instance, every product, every project we or probably you start on will have a number of attributes that we're trying to convey. You know, they could be brand attributes or mm-hmm. they could be usability attributes. And it could be things like friendly or safe mm-hmm. or easy or, you know, environmentally friendly, any number of things that we want to convey visually and also deliver you mm-hmm. know, in the final product. Um, by understanding 
what people are saying about various products that we show them or that they try. And by doing some statistical analysis, we can actually see which one of those attributes actually have the most meaning to people and also which of the products that people are looking at also are conveying that meaning. We can look for differences uh, geographically. We can look for differences by gender, males and females, quite often think differently. Um, and we look for patterns. And you know, we call it mapping, emotional mm -hmm. mapping, because we take these, these uh, results that we see people tell us. We sort of try to dissect the brain, but we visualize them. First thing we do is plot them, and we look for patterns. And very often we see patterns. And if we start to see patterns, we'll design for them. Mm -hmm. You know, if we see, well, that looks friendly because it's, you know, has a curve, but this looks energetic because it's shiny, then what that tells us is that, well, should we try one that's curving and shiny? <laughs> and we don't have to do it. You right. know, it's up to the design group to do it, but, you know, it's a very ex exploratory, experimental process. But it really takes us on a, on a journey that's really kind of fun because what we're doing is in that process is learning about people and how people think. And we could either... Uh, evolve the project according to the way people think, or we can you know, take the other approach and say, well, we're just going to shock them with this. Right. Right. We know it's going to be a shock because it's not what they're used to seeing. So it's not a, by doing this uh, emotional mapping or perception studies, it's not something that I see control us, but it is something that feeds our information pool, you know, makes us smarter. Now, what do you say to people that are critical of research? There are some extraordinary designers out there. Where are, that, those, who are, the, where are those people? Uh, right. Massimo Vignelli, I know, is, is absolutely staunchly opposed to research. He feels that if somebody is coming to him for, for design, that he's the expert and he doesn't need to um, speak with uh, consumers. Um, I know that there are a number of other cultural uh, leaders that are very... Um, negative about research. Um, any, any thoughts on what, what your response is to that? Yeah, I think I have more of a, a Leonardo da Vinci approach. Which is? Know, which is, let's like, try things and tinker and research and cut some bodies apart and you know, let's figure out how these things work technically in engineering. So to me, all things, um, all things are game. You know, mm -hmm. all things are fine. We, there are some projects that we've done, like, for instance, the OXO projects really did not do any market research at all when we started. We had a point of view. We uh, did. We had a pretty good understanding of what the needs are of arthritis. Never did any market research because mm -hmm. it wasn't even in our radar scope that that would be, you know, we had a point of view. We knew where we wanted to be. So it, it really depends on whether or not you feel like you need new information to give you a vision of where you want to be, or if you as a designer already have a vision. So I don't disagree with either approach. You know, there are things that we have done that have uh, entailed no research, and I'm extremely proud of, uh, because the team who embarked on this project had a vision of where we wanted to be. So what besides OXO could you uh, name as something that you're proud of that's been done without market research? We did a. We developed the interface and the, the first successful XM radio, satellite radio, and it was a very tight time frame project. We did not have a budget or in our radars, in our in our project plan to go out and do a whole lot of usability research, but we had worked with with XM previously in doing a conceptual radio uh, before they launched their satellites, 
they eventually launched their satellites and they had some radios produced by companies like Sony and Audiovox and Pioneer and the radios that were first on the market were actually kind of terrible because they were based on the idea of broadcast radio where mm -hmm. you may only have a number of channels but not the 120 channels that, that XM had launched at that time so we took the approach, they came back to us because we did the concept car radio mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for them you know, like a few years early and they said can you know we need a really good radio and what our team did was actually the way we describe it looking back retrospectively is what was great about it is one we put together a really good team of people on that project and two we all aligned ourselves with a vision vision meaning not a vision from God as much as a vision of where we wanted to be right and from that point on we, we just we just you know address that vision the other thing that was cool about that project is that Everyone, while well, we had graphic designers, engineers, you know, uh, industrial designers, people who were in charge with interaction, while well, we had several people, di different people on that team, all those boundaries got really fuzzy. You know, the graphic designer wanted to do the product design, and, you know, that meant the engineer had to do the graphic design. Mm -hmm. and, you know, exaggerating a little bit, but we crossed borders because really <laughs> where we were, very much like OXA, we had this vision of where we wanted to be. And it was a direct line from here to there, and because we had that vision. So I would agree with. In other cases, research has, has like you know boggled our minds and really fed into our entire like thought process. And the research that we've done, I actually don't like using the word research, but you know that. What do you use instead? Upfront work. Well, there's my problem. I don't have. That. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> Inside research is what everything understands, but it is export. You know, my my initial. Um, yeah, I use words like exploration, tinkering, mm -hmm. um, experimenting, all mm -hmm. sorts of of positive, like, you know, quasi-scientific words. But, yeah, it's, it's research. One more question about this particular topic, and then I have a couple of other questions I want to ask you about all the other things that you do besides the work at SMART. You, you mentioned something about shocking people. Sometimes you just want to put something out and shock them. Any time that that's happened in recent memory, consumers rebel. Look at what has happened on Facebook with the Facebook redesigns, the, all of the uh, negativity that has been put forth. Uh, what recently happened with Tropicana, something radically different that consumers see, have absolutely no understanding of, and rebel. Now, I, I know personally when I see certain brands redesigned, I am often skeptical, as uh, this is what I do for a living, and, and if I'm skeptical, I can only imagine somebody that's not in the business seeing something that's even just, just slightly redesigned, how they could feel vulnerable. How do we get around something like this in today's market where people are so capable of communicating quickly what they think about something without giving anything a chance to really take hold in our culture. Can we really still shock people anymore and, and have that outcome be positive? Can we ever have another Aaron chair where for two years people didn't understand what it was they were looking at or sitting on and then it took off and then it became enormously successful and still is today? Do, we, do you think that we're not going to have these opportunities in the future? Well, there's probably a realistic difference between doing that with an Aeron chair, where it is a risk versus return, and a Tropicana package, where those 
you know, bottles of Tropicana orange juice were already on the shelves and people stopped buying them, mm. which I think was the case. So they're two quite different scenarios, I think, from the company's point of view. In one, they're introducing a new product and there's room to ramp to, for the ramp up. In Tropicana's case, I think what happened is sales just took a nosedive, mm -hmm. right? Is that fair to say? So they're much different scenarios. So yeah, certainly what you want to do is understand the risk and manage risk, and risk is good because that's the only way, only way you're going to get innovation. You're not going to get, you know, several years ago, people would not say, I want 10,000 songs in a little white box. Can right. you give that to me? Right? Sure, sure. Um, Absolutely. What so. Henry Ford said, you know, if you ask consumers what they wanted at the turn of the last century in transportation, they would have said a faster horse. Right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, we have two callers, so I guess we'll take these back to back, and then um, we'll, we only have about nine minutes left for the show. That more questions, lots more questions. So first we have Ellen. Ellen calling. Thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi. My question is, well, first of all, I want to know what you think of the new Tropicana packaging. You were just talking about it. And then my next part, my next question is about, you know, you're talking about whether or not to do research. And I was wondering, what about when what you really want or what you think the right decision is comes across as totally different in research? And the client doesn't know which one to pick. Interesting questions. I think that we'll let Dan take those both. Well, Tropicana, you're asking what do we think about the new package or the re retreat to the old package? The, the redesigned, not the new, not the one they're using now, not the one they're going back to. Um, you know, it sort of came and went in a flash to me. And I thought it was just not as warm as the other one and a little generic and a little odd that the word Tropicana was vertical. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I thought it was a interesting but strange move. I was a little surprised, I guess, by the quick reaction to retreat it, you know, or I guess consumer's reaction to it. Um, I am always sad when package designs don't work. And I'm going to leave it at that. I think that that could easily be the topic of an entire show. So the next question that Ellen asked, um, do you want you want to take that one, Dan? It was, say it again, it was. Ellen, you want to repeat the question? Sure. It was Second about question. Um, who you trust to make the final decisions about things. Do you trust yourself? Do you have to listen to the client or do you listen to research? What about when you really strongly believe it, it should be one thing, but the research shows another thing and your client wants something that you think will not? Well, you know, sometimes with design, there's not one answer. Right. You know, so the idea, the premise that there is one perfect answer is not necessarily the case. That being said, it does help to have a lot of your, you know, reasons and ammunition and to have people share your vision. It, it also helps to get people involved in projects very early on so they go along for the ride with you so that by the time you get to the end of the project where you have several choices, it sort of makes sense. You know, your recommendations and what they see uh, align and make sense. Now, in the real world, that doesn't always happen. But it should also be the case that as a designer, you may not, not want to recommend or produce an option that you don't believe in because the chances are somebody will and you know that could be selected to your dismay yes dismay <laughs> it's an understatement thank you for calling Ellen thank Isabel you. I believe we also have Isabel on the line Isabel thank you for calling Design Matters yes hi Debbie hi Daniel hi uh, this question isn't 
the loftiest or most cerebral question following up the Tropicana question. I just um, I heard in the intro that you co-authored a baseball book, and considering that today is the day that Yankee Stadium opened, I wanted to know if you're going to go to Yankee Stadium and how do you feel about its redesign? The opening game is that is an exhibition game there today. The opening game is on the 16th, oh. and I'm traveling. <laughs> they're, they're also not easy tickets to get. But yeah, I, tack I tackled the idea of a book on baseball, having done a lot of information design work with many clients over the years. Uh, got this idea ages and ages ago that baseball would be a great topic for information design. And this idea went on for many embarrassing number of years, untouched. Uh, I finally got off the ground. Got I was working with Paul Hamburger at Smart Design, graphic design at Smart Design. He's a big Mets fan. Well, are you even a Mets or Yankees? Yankees. So even though he was a Mets fan, we cooperated. <laughs> and um, But I've worked with Paul on many projects, and we talked about this for some time, and finally um, it finally took off. We finally got started on it. And so what we did, if you ever read the rules of baseball, you'll realize they are dysfunctional. Now, it, this is the baseball field guide that you... The baseball field guide is the name of the book, title right. of the book. And what it is, it's, a, um, it's actually a easy-to-read, revised, well-illustrated edition of the rules of Major League Baseball, the official rules of Major League Baseball. The official rules read like a god-awful legal document. Well, the, the writing styles are very, very... They go back 100 years. The um, rules committee has been... They, they rarely meet. And there are rules in the book that date back to the 1800s, untouched, because messing with the rules of baseball is like messing with the Bible. So we, of course, didn't change the rules of baseball, but we untangled them. We rearranged the entire, we rewrote them in English, we illustrated them, we arranged the book in, a, we call it a field guide because our vision is you'd see something happen in the game, just like a field guide to birds, you'd mm -hmm. see the bird, and then, oh, what was that? And you'd be able to very quickly reference that rule. And is this book now being used by Major League Baseball? The umpires are, um, they don't even carry their own official copy of the rule book, even though they're supposed to because it's a, I am told, it is a, you know, no self-righteous umpire would be caught on the field because, you know, imagine a game and something going wrong oh, yeah, and an umpire pulling out a book. <laughs> right. that's, that's not a good, it's not a good image, but um, there are cases where we um, actually uh, beat out the, you know, when people referenced our book last year, there was a, there was an instance where the uh, there was a so one of the teams batted out of order. It was a Cardinals Reds. I was a Mets Reds game, and um, was it just by accident? It's a rare event for a batter to bat out of order. It's a very rare event. Um, it's a rare event, but it happened, and the results the next day were that some of the writers on the internet said, uh, "I grabbed my copy of the baseball field guide and I had the answer in two minutes." It took the umpires on the field five minutes to figure out what the rule was. And so what is the rule? What happened? The rule is that the uh, person who uh, who missed their turn at bat, they're the, they're the person out. Wow. Yeah. Extraordinary. That's wonderful. So you have this book now that might be used for the next hundred years. It, uh, hopefully they won't change, update the rules for a while, but you know, it happens every decade or so. Now, from what I understand, you're also a musician. Is that correct? A closet 
guitarist, yeah. Yeah, um, <laughs> you're looking at me like I just discovered your dirty did, secret. Yeah, my dirty secret. Right? <laughs> now, why, why are you looking so embarrassed about this? No, no, I'm not embarrassed. Oh, okay. Now, you also created, um, one of the things that you also designed is something that I'm not even sure if I'm going to be able to pronounce correctly, but it's the D'Armand Tremolo Control in print trim troll units. No, no, no. Let me get into this obsession. Okay. <laughs> no. I am. I have. You know, being a guitarist and being into analog. Okay. Old school analog. Have dug up one of the earliest effects units for electric guitar that exist, and it is an old uh, mechanical device built in the late 40s. Mm-hmm. And I am the self-proclaimed leading expert. <laughs> In the country on these tremolo units. Tremolo will vary pitch. Uh, I'm sorry, not pitch. Tremolo will vary volume. Uh-huh. So what it does is make something loud and, and you know louder and lower very quickly. Oh, I could probably tremolo. use that for the radio show. You can use that for radio. It will give you a warble to your voice. But anyway, there are some old effects units, and they're sort of classic, mechanical, funky, cult-like things. And yeah, I've got a collection of them, and can restore them and there. I read an article about about it. Uh, I think it was in Guitar Digest. Is that correct? Guitar Buyer Magazine. Okay. Yes. I was interviewed with Bo Diddley. With Bo Diddley, I was very great, impressed great by that. Great claim to fame. Yes. Wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Well, Dan, unfortunately, we've come to the end of the show. It's been so wonderful talking to you for the last hour. I'm sorry about the lightning strike. Um, and thank you for coming to Design Matters. I'd also like to thank the staff of my partners at Sterling, especially Lisa Grant and Jen Simon. Joining me next week is the best-selling author of the book, A Whole New Mind, by Dan Pink. Thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference. We could make a difference. We can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters right here on The Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.